Hey there out there. You are deeply tuned in right now, man, to The Real People Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Ginsberg. If it's your first time tuning into The Real People Pod, welcome. If it's your 10th time tuning into The Real People Pod, welcome. Appreciate that. If it's your like third or fourth time tuning in, you're like, it's all right, I'm back. Appreciate that, too. Welcome back to the show. I have a great guest today. Julian Wilkinson is here, a.k.a. Jules, video producer and teller of amazing, unique, interesting stories from around the world. My 32nd deep thought this week is just around how we're going to actually have holidays again. That didn't dawn on me until like pretty recently. I was like, oh, everybody's talking about going to Halloween or like Thanksgiving or like a Christmas party. But I feel like we didn't we skipped over so many other things like other holidays, people's birthdays. That it's like, are we just going to forget about those? Or do we have to do like a backlog of catching up on? Well, first we have to do grandpa's birthday. Then we have to do Aunt Jane's, you know, retirement party. Then we have to do 17 weddings. Then we have to, you know, go catch up on Easter. And then we can start to talk about the 2020 Thanksgiving. I don't really think it's fair to say we need a 2020 Thanksgiving. We should just free up November 26th to catch up on on a holiday that we didn't get to do this year. You know? What about Great Uncle Larry's Amway presentation? That was supposed to be on April 12th, 2020. Well, okay, so if we skip Thanksgiving and just kind of remember all the other Thanksgivings we had, we had them for a while. All right, it's going to be like that, right? Probably cut that one, sacrifice it, get the Amway presentation on the calendar for the 26th, and you're catching up, you see? Make some concessions, people, you see? Cancel Christmas this year, okay? You've had so many Christmases. Just cancel it and then use that day to have Cousin Mike's high school graduation party. Do it for him. All right? All right. Let's get this thing off the ground. Okay, my guest today on the Real People podcast is Julian Wilkinson. I call her Jules. Jules was most recently a video producer at Great Big Story. Um, I'm thankful to have her on the show to talk about her experience producing stories with Great Big Story, her time as a editor, Uh, what goes into the creative process, and how you go about uncovering original, interesting stories that are worth sharing. I learned a lot from this conversation with Jules. I am deeply appreciative that she did it. As a side note, I just want to say I officiated her wedding, which was to my best friend Brian. I just wanted to mention that because for anybody listening, if you find that your wedding got rescheduled due to COVID-19 and uh, you need a priest or an officiant, I am available. I do bar mitzvahs. I offer a good rate, and every officiation that I've done, 100% success, happy marriages across the board, 1-800-AndrewWedding.gov. Anyway, Jules is a fascinating person. Um, I admire her very much. I think she's talented, funny, excited to see what she does next, and I hope if you're interested in um, producing media and film and digital content delivery, you find this interview useful. I know that I did, and uh, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Jules. television producer at Great Big Story. I was. And um, and according to your IMDb profile, you've done a lot of stuff before that, too. Yeah. So I thought maybe we could just talk through like like the highlights and some of the things that you've done. I also want to kind of get into your process a little bit and learn a bit more about just how you view making films um, in general. And it's, it's actually just something I'm particularly interested in. I think people that listen to the show are probably interested in, too, because the show's kind of primarily about passions and, and stuff like that. So all right, I've, I ask people a lot of this, and it's a pretty simple question, but it's like, before we get into the body of work itself, like, how does it start? Were you, were you, I've asked this question so many times, but it's a good one. Were you like a theater kid? Is that how it started? Like a oh, big yeah. theater dork? Kinda? Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> 100% music theater nerd. Um, nice. <laughs> all through high school, 
loved it. Really thought like my destiny was to be on the stage. Yeah. Um, and then I did a audition workshop in maybe year 11. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh no, this is awful. I don't want to audition. Like <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be cast and do things. Yeah. Um, so it took that and then I was like, nah, this, this isn't what I want to do. But it was when I was actually in year 12. So the final year of school in Australia, so mm-hmm. I'm from Australia. Right. I think it's the same in America. Who knows? We, yeah. we all use different words. I went to university. <laughs> you guys go to college. Right, right, right. Same right. thing. Yeah, it's the same. And then we finish in year 12 as well, I think. Right. So I was in 12th grade um, and I took all the arts classes I could. I was taking textiles, history, literature, media, drama wow. as my final year. Uh, no maths, no science. Uh, <laughs> Who needs that? <laughs> no, no yeah, skills. That, that, <laughs> High paying <that> jobs. <laughs> Don't need that. <laughs> so exactly. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm taking my media class and for our final produ- thing that we had to do to be assessed on, we had to make a film. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a musical. I wrote all the music for it. I cast all my musical theater friends in Whoa. it um, and ma- and recorded it in a studio. My mum had friends who had a studio, <laughs> so I recorded it in a studio. I filmed it at this maze in um, the Mornington Peninsula, a place called Ashcombe Maze. Very fancy. Wow. Um, and I just loved it. I put so much effort into the production of it. I found that I was staying back at school hours after school had ended to edit it. And after I finished that project, I was just like, wow, that didn't feel like work. That mm-hmm. just felt fun. I want to do this now. Yeah. Um, and so literally in my last maybe couple of months of school, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to make film. Like, that's that's what I'm going to do now. And I just changed where I'd applied to universities and, and found one that I liked. And yeah. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's amazing that on your first try, your first project, you were able to conceptualize an entire musical and then produce it. <laughs> uh, I mean, so you, are you you're a musician as well? Uh, both of my parents are. So okay. I, you know, just got that little bit of musical gene. I yeah. don't pursue it, but yeah. You, I mean, you could write a song for a musical, though. I mean, that's pretty amazing. I, I did. <laughs> if I had to do it now, yeah. I mean, I play piano and I sing. Those yeah. are what I can do. But That's yeah. amazing. So where's that musical now? Is this, can we see it? Is oh, God, yeah, yeah, it's on YouTube. Is it's, it really? It is. It's called Musical Me. Okay. Um, it was filmed on, like, a handy cam, nice. so we're going to ignore the quality <laughs> of the footage itself. Oh, I think everybody would agree that um, whatever you produce in, in 12th grade is obviously is going to be the same standards as what you produce now, but it sounds like it was yeah. probably more advanced than what I produced in 12th grade, <laughs> which was, like, me and my friends on a road by in my house smoking cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> that was our comedy hour. <laughs> that, that sounds great. I want to watch that too. Well, you'd have to. We'd have to go dig through my closet through the VHSs. It's definitely oh, not on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I shot my first film on a uh, thing that my dad used to film my fourth grade uh, graduation ceremony. So it's a nice big old VHS, you know, player. I used yep. to carry it around. Um, but then, I, that, because of the low quality of what I produced, I didn't go on to create a uh, career in film. <laughs> uh, maybe you were inspired after you saw what was possible through your your creativity and the tools that were around. Well, I think the thing that I learned really, really quickly from doing that is that, sure, like I can learn skills, but it matters more who I put on screen. Sure. And because I had gone and picked my friends who were actors and actresses and were going to pursue a career in that, and a lot of them that were in it have and are now successful in that area, mm-hmm. um, it really taught me like you got to surround yourself with the most talented people to make anything good. Sure. So, and it also puts yeah. a lot of pressure on you to... To, to, to keep up, you know, not that, yeah, not that you wouldn't, sure. but when you're, especially when you're young, you know, you want to be around people that are super highly effective. So like, I always feel that I operate the best in any scenario when I feel a lot of pressure because everybody around me is like counting on me, but I'm not up mm-hmm. to par. So I have to work, work, work to get it to, to at least fake it till you make it in that way. Yeah. You know, 
Um, for so sure. I know you know what I mean. But so, <laughs> all right, so where did you go to? So you went to school. Where did you go to school? You mentioned like college yeah. or uh, university. <laughs> university, yes. I went to uni uh, uh, at yeah. Deakin University okay. in no Australia. No gap year. No, I did take a gap year, actually. Yeah, sorry. No, I took a gap year. I know. (laughs) Yeah, we don't like to, like, study six years back to back. Yeah, no, it's it's a good way to be. You know, I wish that we took gap years here. I'd be a much more highly uh, functional adult, I think, if I had (laughs) taken some time to figure out what I want to do with my life. It does. (laughs) It does help. I think if you, if every high school student was encouraged to, like, work in retail for a year or work, like, their part-time job for a full year, you end that year being like, oh, my God, get me back to education. Like, (laughs) I'm done with customers. I need to be in like learning environments again, which I definitely was. I worked for like six months. I traveled for six months. At yeah. the end of it, I was like, I'm, I need to learn again. I'm back. I'm, I want to go back to school. And maybe that speaks to who you are. And, and I don't mean to be like a, a stereotype guy. I'm sure you get a lot of this as an Australian person. Yeah, I go for but it. I just thought that like Australians, like gap year isn't working in retail. It's like, I'm going to go to all these fabulous places all over the world. And then maybe I'll never stop traveling. <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe I'll well. just get, is that an, it seems like that's an option for Australians. It's like, it's like I met them on like on my travels to Vietnam. It's like, mate, yeah. you're only staying here for a year. Like, we're gonna be here for fucking years. You know what I mean? Like, that's a vacation. <laughs> yeah, we do do that. I guess because we're like, d- if you leave Australia, yeah, you're going far. Like, right. no matter even if you're going to like New Zealand or to Vietnam, like yeah. you're still going far. So you, there's no difference between going to Vietnam or going to Europe or going to America. Like, you're sitting on a plane for over four hours. It yeah. might as well be 12. You know, like, who cares? <laughs> you're already there. So, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, it's, 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 it's too much of a trip to go back. So you might as right. well milk the rest of the world while you're at it. Sure. Also, I think most countries are open to taking Australians. Like, you know, like, like, you know, working, you can go work in a pub in like England if you wanted to. You know, like, we, I don't think US people could. Cause it's like, I always say that Australia is like America if it was done correctly in terms of the constitution. <laughs> it's like it, not founded on deeply religious and conservative values. Right. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, it's like, not. it's like freedom put through the lens of like cool people. <laughs> That's sure. <laughs> you, know, you think about Ben Franklin, he wasn't a cool guy. Right. You know what I mean? Our founders were, I just feel like Australians were kind of cool. They had an edge to them and that permeated throughout your, I your think it's history. Just like, yeah. <laughs> I would I would argue that there's countries that definitely don't want Australian tourists. Like I think Bali might be done with us. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Enough, enough of you. Like I think <laughs> I think they've had enough of us. Right. Maybe. Too many. Everyone. I think you'd be hard pressed to find an Australian, except for myself, that mm-hmm. has never been to Bali. Because yeah. that's like one of our closer places to travel. So they, they get a lot of Australian tourists. It it is really beautiful and like the people that are going there and have the have the want to like know more about the culture and the people and the food, which I mean, it's like 90% of traveling is for the food. Right. But um, then there's people that just go there for the full moon parties and the <laughs> yeah, cocktails no. and the cheap drinks and all that sort of stuff. So it's two very different types of tourists. Yeah. I, I always try I'm and be category a- B. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be in category A these days though, but I, I think I yep. organically belong in category B. Um, okay, so all right, so you, you've done your gap year, you've tried retail, you, you go back to education. Now you're in film school. Yep. And so, what was the first thing that you what, that you made after that, after your uh, musical? Like, oh my god, the first thing I made in uni. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't actually remember the first project I touched a camera for okay. when I first started at university because you kind of do a bunch of background courses before you're like yeah. given a camera yeah. i remember <laughs> in first year deacon oh god this is terrible but in first nah. year deacon there's a film class called light sound and motion and for that class you learn how to roll cables so you see all the first year students every year standing out on the grass with a giant yellow 
cable, throwing it onto the grass and rolling that cable. And <laughs> just like learning how to roll cable is a, and it's, it is a very important production skill. If you want to work on sets and you can roll cable really efficiently and really quickly, like that's a good skill to have. But yeah, you know, there's wires everywhere. There's right? wires everywhere. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. <laughs> by the time we were third year, you'd see the first years and you'd be like, oh, first year film kids rolling their cables. <laughs> like I remember the day I rolled cable. I remember when I rolled cable. Yeah. That's really, that's really funny. I've never thought about that before. That, that's an actual skill. I I'm, I'm also rolling it like I'm paying for this course. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but clearly if you look around my apartment right now, that's a good skill to have. I don't know how to roll I cables. I could roll all. all of these cables. I'm sure you could. I, and I, I've had people come on the show and actually do it because they're like, I can't operate like this. Right. Um, that's, but still, I mean, even if, even if you're rolling cables, like I, I kind of, I find this interesting because I like the idea of going to college for something that you're passionate about. Um, I, I, I try to do that sort of, but that sounds like you did something you really cared about. And you spoke earlier like about when you were in your, uh, whatever you call it, high school, comprehensive school, I don't know, um, that like you, know, you were kind of uh, – you, you were interested in this idea of flow, of doing something that gets you into like a presence that where you're like, well, I, I'm like really tapped into something. Yeah. I feel like even rolling cable, though, in, in film school, if you're going to be a film student – you must be doing it like this is all working out. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm on I'm, my way. I'm in the zone. Yeah, like I'm on a, I'm on a set. Like I, I, yeah. I feel like you could still find like some sort of joy in that, you know? For sure. Yeah. I think, you know, they give you a background of everything. And that was one of the really good things about Deacon. They gave me a background in all sorts of different elements of film and video production because my degree was film and digital media so mm. we're, we're reaching into the digital age when i was in um college right i mean i got an iphone when i was in college like wow whoa, whoa. whoa. not the first year second year that's like oh showing my age a little bit <laughs> but I, I didn't you know. get an iphone until after college so it's, okay well. it's a way after college so it's okay it was like uh <laughs> and then even then it was like it has a camera on it do i even need this degree like <laughs> Just use my iPhone, um, which is kind of, yeah. <laughs> which is actually a good camera, right? It's, I don't know, you tell me, like, it's all right? I will say that iPhones, and anyone that works in post-production mm -hmm. knows this, iPhones will film, and then if you take that footage and try and, like, bring it into a project, yeah. you can't, like, set a frame rate for iPhone footage, or there uh. was a certain point where you couldn't set a frame rate for iPhone footage. And so it's like you film it, and the iPhone's just like, yeah, I'll figure it out later. Like, I'll just, I'll put it, let's see what happens in post. <laughs> this could be, it could be 23 frames, could be 45. Like, I'll figure it out. And that's how, that's how I use my iPhone anyway. I send a bunch of text messages at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'll, yeah, I'll figure it out yeah. later. So that's just the workflow of the iPhone. That makes sense. It <laughs> it's a very, like, fuck it approach it's to a, iPhone. It's, it's just a fuck it approach to life. You yeah. Know? It's like, it's just a fucking thing in my pocket. Like, Fuck it. That's Basically. iPhone X. You know, fuck it. Yeah. That should be their tagline. Okay. All right. So. Sorry. Tangents. No, 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 no. I mean, that was an important one, though. I think we had to get that out there. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so you're going through college. Is there, again, I don't mean this to be like, I, I'm genuinely asking this question. Not, mm -hmm. uh, It's coming from a place of complete ignorance, but is there like um, an, an Australian version of Hollywood like we're, we're like or media like what what were you imagining you were gonna go do you know documentary film and what does that look like in in where you were at? Um, so I think I was going through college thinking that I was probably going to work in fiction. I didn't think I was gonna be in nonfiction. I think one of the things they kept telling us was the most stable jobs in film and video production is the news because uh, the news goes on every day. Right. So if like that's something you want to do, like you should sort of lean towards that. Um, I also had a professor, I call them lecturers. I'm translating for no. you. 
um, I had a lecturer once. If you had once said lecturer, <laughs> I would have been like, I'm so lost right now. <laughs> I had a, well, I had a professor once say to me that um, if you want to shoot music videos, get out of my class. Wow. I was like, okay, so I'm not going to do music videos. Great. Yeah. Um, but no, I really thought I was going to work in fiction. And in Australia, there is a, like, a film and TV industry obviously um it's significantly smaller than america mm. and at that stage when i was in university the idea of working in digital like making digital video wasn't really a career option mm -hmm. I, I kind of thought i was gonna have to either work in news or try and see if i could pa for 10 years on a fiction show like a, a series and then hopefully maybe one day i'd get like climbing up the ladder that way yeah um, but it wasn't actually until I took a student exchange program option where I could come to uh, America and I came to New York ah. for six months and studied uh, abroad at Hunter College hey, in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 68th. That's it. Yeah, 68th yeah, and Lex. 68th and Lex. Uh, so I was here for a whole semester and it was doing that. I was just like, mm, maybe for the first few years of my career. I'll try and leave Australia and oh. then I'll come back because I didn't think I was going to get the experience straight away that I wanted to mm -hmm. in Australia. And then what was the moment when you were here that made you realize, like, I think I have, I see a, a career path I can carve out. Like what was, what was that project or, you know, like when did that click for you? They're like, maybe I'll stay here and, and this is the, the direction I'm being ushered in. Um, well, I think the idea of like staying here was always, you know, visas, green cards, everything. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. You, you can want something and then the law can just be like, no, nah, we're going to make it really hard for you. Yeah, yeah you know, so. I, I, know. <laughs> I, I, uh, I hear you. Of course, with of, of course, all that immigration all that stuff aside. with the U.S., <laughs> all that aside, I mean more just like from a, um, you're talking about like I need to find a footing in digital media. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. When, when did that kind of aha moment hit you? Uh, so I was interning while I was studying at film school in New York for a company called Broadway Video. And I was working in their post-production house, um, mm -hmm. which doesn't exist anymore. Gotcha. But that was so much exposure to the editing side of things, to post-production side of things. It started making me think, oh, maybe I could work in this area because there seems to be a lot more positions. You know, I could become really good at coloring and be a colorist or I could just be in the operations and could like run projects and like manage projects for other clients or, or companies. And even as an intern for that company, I got so much more exposure in that six months mm -hmm. to such a bigger industry than I had been getting in Australia. And so that was sort of what solidified uh, that maybe I would need to get my first few years experience <laughs> out of Australia. But I also had a British passport. So I was like, maybe I'll just go to England. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> just, I, was, I was also taking the iPhone fuck it approach to my career. Well, like I said, you're Australian, so you could do that. You right. Know, you could go, I'm working a pub. I'll do this. I'll, you know, I can do anything I want. I'm Australian. The whole world will take us. Yeah. So that's uh, that's pretty. OK, well, let me ask you about this. And so you had a, um, a, a show early on. I think if I understood your Instagram that I was talking last night correctly, <laughs> uh, Room and Board. Yes, which was an, an Australian show. It was. Um, and I watched what I could find on the internet of it, mm -hmm. and it was. I thought it was really fucking funny. I was like <laughs> peeing my pants, laughing out loud. Um, oh my so friends! When did, when did so you happy. make that? Yeah, like, I know. Maybe maybe it's not the most important thing you've done in your life. Like I know you produced all these amazing pieces for CNN and stuff like that, but that was really fucking funny, and it seemed like you did it a long time ago. So I, I just was curious to learn a little bit more about that, or when yeah. that happened in this timeline. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that was a project that my friend uh, Liam started in Australia. He wrote it with his brother, Brod. And I came on after the first episode. So they, I think, got a grant from Deakin TV. So mm -hmm. from our university, they got a, a small grant to like make the pilot episode. 
And I think I was in my last year of uni and we all had to take on roles on our final project. And at that point, I had just come back from New York. I'd just been in the post-production world. I'm like, I'm going to be an editor. I want to be an editor on anyone's project. <laughs> and then my friends and the group that I really wanted to work with and the script that I really thought was the best script, they, they'd already got an editor. Wow. And so my friend Sam was like, well, you could produce it. And I was like, oh, produce it? Like, what does a producer do? Like, <laughs> cut to me 10 years later still being a producer. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> that's good, and and that's, let's, let's talk about that because, like, when I hear the term producer, I'm not sure quite sure I understand. You okay. know, I, mean, I do now, but for yeah. a long time I didn't, yeah. So I think producer is a really varied term in production. Um, so I'm a producer in that I'm a producer, shooter, editor. So I, because I work in the digital space, I do it all. Mm -hmm. um, as a producer for this, which was a fiction short film in Australia, the producer really was the one who was just organizing everything, like all the elements. So I was doing the cast. I was setting up the casting. I was reaching out to locations to get permissions. I was making sure the cast had their scripts. I was coordinating costumes. I was on set, like making sure everything was running to schedule and to budget and to you know you're sort of overseeing things and making it happen yeah yeah the end-to-end -end plan yeah. Right? yeah 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 basically um now as a producer I'm way more involved in every element like I'm pitching stories I'm producing them I'm I keep saying producing I'm <laughs> like shooting them or editing them or overseeing them overseeing freelancers do them yeah I'm I mean, kind that of all, over the that place. all bubbles up to it, uh, production I think yeah so you're kind of in everything. Yeah. I, well, what happened to that? Because it seemed like it just resurfaced. It, it was really funny. It reminded me sort of like The Office in some ways. Like oh, of Room and Board? Right. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. So Room and Board, I came on uh, and Liam and his brother have written had written some amazing scripts. They were really good scripts. Yeah. And like you wanted them to happen, but they just didn't have that person that was like lighting the fire under them. Yeah. And so that's why they brought me on. And I, I, I mean, we did that together. They wrote these amazing scripts. And then I was the one that was contacting all the cast and sending them call sheets and booking our schedule and like making that sort of side of things happen. And then they were on the production side of things where they were like coordinating with the camera guys and the sound guys and, and you know, making it all, all happen. But we shot that the year after we graduated. So it was almost like... We finished university. None of us had got our dream jobs in yeah. Australian film and television. <laughs> and it was kind of like, fuck it. We'll just make our own. Yeah. Like, okay, like, let's just do it. And I think it was took us about six months um, to shoot and then took about five years to edit and <laughs> see the light of day. Actually, I think that's being generous. I think it took about seven years before uh, it went up on YouTube like last year. Yeah. Yeah, I was re-watching it like, oh, I forgot that scene. I'm in it as well. I'm yeah. in one scene that I totally <laughs> forgot I was in. <laughs> Is that a trip to like, see your young self uh, in a thing that you produced that you didn't remember you did? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also like being an umpire in a oh, – umpire, I don't know. Like I'm being that person that makes the sh calls the shots in a sports game. I think that's game. an umpire. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're talking to the wrong guy about that. But I have yeah. no idea. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and I, I said something and it was like totally wrong. I was scripted to say like, oh, offside. And I, that was wrong. Like I don't know the sport. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it took a long time to come out, but it really was – I think a way for all of us who had recently graduated were feeling a little bit disheartened by not landing our immediate dream jobs to have a creative outlet. And it also taught us so many skills that I still to this day use. And that was the best training ground possible because it was with my friends. It was with a project that was really fun and funny to be part of and with actors who like these were friends of friends or people who auditioned and these actors were fantastic. And the fact that the Australian industry like hadn't snapped them up before we did yeah. the, the like eight years ago was 
amazing. Like, I mean, a few of them work professionally as actors now. And you can see why, because they're just... Super talented. Super talented. So funny. Comedic timing. Amazing. And presence on screen. I was was really impressed by this very... very uh, seemingly older uh, thing that I hadn't heard of that you had done before. And (laughs) that's why I wanted to bring it up. It's it's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is a really fun show. It's it's a little, uh, what do you call it? Mockumentary-esque. So I went from mockumentary to documentary. Yeah. And let's talk about that. So, so all these skills that you're learning, I guess I call it low stakes in the sense where you're working with your friends and there's less, you know, um, there's less probably corporate stuff breathing down your neck and, and, but then you wind up producing for the great big story. Yeah. And, um, I was wondering if we could just talk about how that all came to be. So I landed a job um, out of out of school about a year after I graduated, maybe less, like eight, ten months after I graduated. We'd finished shooting Room and Board, um, and I came to America for a holiday, mm. and I wanted to catch up with my friends at Broadway Video. So I'd seen them a few times. The day I was flying out, I had a bit of extra time, so I was like, I'll go have lunch with a friend from Broadway Video. I got there, completely slammed, didn't have time. Yeah. My old boss was sitting at the front door taking calls, she slams down the phone and looks at me and she's like, I'm so sick of interviewing people for this receptionist job. Do you want it? <laughs> and I was just like, like my flight was leaving in five hours. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I want the job. She's like, okay, let's take an interview. Wow. And like hired me on the spot, which was crazy for this like receptionist job. So I flew back to Australia and was just like, oh my God, I, I said yes to a job. I have no idea if I can get a visa or how I'm going to do this. Like I've got, I got to figure it out. That's so cool. But I just, I, you know, I did it. Yeah. I did it in three weeks. I got home. I like packed up my life and moved to New York wow. um, to, to be a receptionist at a post-production house. Uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, hey, those are the opportunities, obviously, that you look back on now and you're like, thank God I had the audacity to say yes yeah. to that type of thing, which was like probably hard to see at that time, like where that was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I even thought like I had a year visa. I was just like, even if I do it for a year, like that's so much great experience to get in a year and maybe yeah. I'll be able to work on some other stuff while I'm here to put that on my resume, come back to Australia. Like that would be so cool. Uh, I ended up living with a friend from college that I had made when I was previously studying here and her and I lived together in Bushwick. Um, and so it, it felt like comfortable and it felt right to be doing it. So yeah. I ended up working with them for, I think it was like two years. I started as a receptionist clawed my way up to uh, an assistant editor I sort of just said that I really wanted to be in post-production and that I would do the graveyard shift and so you know it's hard to find someone that wants to work three to midnight so sure <laughs> I did that for a while and while I was doing that cake eating hours sorry yeah cake- <laughs> That's what I call cake cake hour, yeah. Well, I definitely wasn't making enough at that point for cake, but it was stealing <laughs> uh, like Cheez-Its from the kitchen hour yeah. for me. <laughs> right, 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 right. Or crushing up granola bars and mixing them with the milk and calling it cereal hour. Oh, jeez. Uh, good times. Yeah. Um, good to be young. <laughs> good to be young taking those entry-level positions. Yeah, but you probably York. felt like you were on top of the world, right? I mean, like you're, yeah. you're in a different good country, call. you're working, you got a visa. Yeah. You're eating weird you know snacks in the middle of the night i mean that that's like a that's like i reflect on those types of points in my life as like some of the best times of my life you don't see it at that time but yeah, yeah. i think because i also even doing that job i just i had the drive to like make it work yeah. i wasn't taking that job thinking oh this is the like stepping stone to a better job it was no i need to make this job work because yeah, if i survive I, yeah if <laughs> i don't get a visa renewal if they don't want to keep me like i'm i'm out so i've just got to keep pushing yeah um and because of that i ended up working on a project that was a cnn show called the wonder list okay which came out 2014 i think it was with bill weir uh and who was the oh god there was a really famous camera guy 
who like did the cinematography for it. Philip Bloom. Okay. Philip Bloom. That's a name I know. Yeah. Yeah. So he was like, I think for the first two seasons, he was their um, like cinematographer. He was attached to the project. Um, and so I worked on that pretty closely with the CNN team and they were so cool and just like obviously I admired everyone who was doing really <laughs> cool shit yeah, <laughs> so I just course. like I wanted to talk to them all the time like get to learn what they were doing and and had like a hundred questions about their process and everything and got to know them really well too as just like friends socially mm-hmm. um, and it was through them that I that one day they just kind of asked me like are you happy here <laughs> <laughs> and we're I tired was, of interviewing people for this job we were yeah. wondering <laughs> It's like my transition. (laughs) (laughs) We're kind of sick of doing the interview. No, they were just like, "Like, are you happy here?" And I was like, "I'd been there for two years." And I was kind of like, "Well, I, I I could, I could, I could find another job. I could change." (laughs) Yeah. Um. And they were like, "Let, let me get an interview with you with the head of CNN Video. Like, maybe they need someone in post over there." And I, I had this interview with him. And for the first few interviews, I thought that I was interviewing for a job in post production for CNN News or something. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the third interview, I think, that they mentioned, hey, we have this new project starting and we're looking for producers and we can see that you've done film work in the past. Like, is this something you'd be interested in? It's like, hell yeah, that's something I'm interested in. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it's like you do one of those moments where you're like, yeah, just hold on one second. Yeah. Go in a closet. Like, <laughs> yes! Yes! <laughs> oh, yes, I would like, be very interested in that. Thank you. Basically, like, <laughs> wait, I work nine to five? <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> wait, what did you say those hours were Yeah. <laughs> and that salary and that like (laughs) title yeah Yeah. i'll take a producer title yeah yeah um so that was really cool and i took the job basically after five or six interviews before the company had a name before the company knew what they were doing like they they didn't have a structure they didn't it was kind of just like we're going to start this thing and it's going to be video but it's not going to be news we'll just go from there and so it was really really a new concept i didn't even know the name of the company until i was walking into my visa interview wow and they had That's wild. They didn't. Th- I took the job not knowing the name of the company. That's cool. Which is, <laughs> in hindsight, like I've, I found out later, a few of my colleagues called them before they accepted the job, just being like, "I just need to know, like, what is this going to be called? Like, yeah. I can't take a job for a company I don't know the name of." But you got to figure. I mean, like, you don't know the name of it, but it's backed by CNN. Right. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's. Uh, it was and, a cool and, new and the thing. secretness of it must have been like I like part of the appeal right? yeah in some ways for sure it was uh, <laughs> it had a code name while we were developing the, the project so wow. we all referred to it by its code name but i realized i couldn't use that code name going into my visa interview and so <laughs> for some reason i was like shit let me just look at my paperwork and i saw the name i'm like okay great and yeah. so my first question when i walked into the visa interview they were like and what is the name of the company you're gonna work for <laughs> like, thank god i studied this five seconds before i walked in <laughs> Um, <laughs> wink, wink, Project Green yeah. Book. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, That's all I can tell you. Yeah. I told you I'd have to kill you. Uh, that would go over <laughs> so well with uh, yeah. any sort of American official yeah. would have loved that. Uh, totally. <laughs> well, it was the Obama years, but yeah, sure. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, that's exciting. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got the job. And then just started from there. We, uh, we sort of developed the concept of what Great Big Story would be and how the stories would be told and what would make a great big story. I think when we first started, it was very experimental. There's a lot of videos that didn't make it to air because we were sort of trying out what would work and what wouldn't. But mm-hmm. yeah, and then here we are, 5,000 videos later or whatever we're at. <laughs> and, and, and you've told some um, really compelling stories and I, I always thought that was really fabulous content for a lot of reasons. Obviously, I know it even outside of knowing you because of uh, my relationship with your husband and Brian. Going, mm-hmm. th- we've, I've always followed the stories and stuff like that. But what, 
and we'll, I want to talk about the successful ones, and I noted down a few um, stories that I know that you particularly uh, reflect on positively. Yeah. And obviously producing so many must be kind of wild to look back on this portfolio of like all these stories because they're all kind of, I would imagine, miniature memories in some ways and yeah. end-to-end processes and trying things and failing. And um, But you said like, okay, well, if you were so experimental and crazy, I just want to talk about this for a sec. If you were so experimental and crazy that they didn't make it, yeah. um, can you give, would you mind giving an example of what something like that is that, that was so crazy that it, it didn't really make the cut, but then what you learned from that experience that then translated to something that was successful? Yeah, <laughs> so um, there was a video that, I, I mean, I actually don't think I filmed this one myself. No, I just remember seeing the footage a lot. Yeah. We we got new cameras and it was, there was definitely a, a training period where we were all working out the best way to use these cameras to film the highest quality footage we could and, and the most, you know, beautiful shots. And there was a piece that was just um, slow motion of one of our producers being covered in a bubble you know those uh guys in new york city that are like blowing those big bubbles they use yeah, like a yeah. hula hoop and like those giant bubbles yeah uh and so i think it was like a like 10 not 10 minutes it was like a couple minute piece of this producer just being covered in bubbles um <laughs> in slow motion yeah. and we kind of looked at it and we're just like there's no story here but like it was really cool footage <laughs> yeah. but it did trigger like we i mean if you've seen a a, a video from the platform they we use a lot of slow-mo so, yeah, you yeah. know, we kind of learned that slow-mo in on uh, FS7s looks really amazing. And oh, gotcha. Yeah. Wow. So it was kind of like one that didn't make it to air. I'm actually trying to think. There was a, f- there was a fair few that didn't make it to air. I did a story about um, this girl who she calls herself Will Letter for Lunch. Mm-hmm. And she does um, lettering, like uh, really beautiful, just handwritten, um, like chalkboarding. Mm-hmm. And she'll do a business's chalkboard sign for lunch. Mm-hmm. And it was a really cool, like little story, but it, it didn't have that third element. It didn't have like that third act. And unfortunately, it just it didn't make it there. Well, when you're, be- you're building, a, uh, it seems like a storytelling mechanism from the ground up. You know, and you're talking about that didn't have that third act. I mean, like, did you did the process of what you considered something publishable become like an organic thing that you felt out by trying these things? Or did you guys sit down and say, well, this is the type of stories we're going to produce? You know, like ha- what yeah. constitutes a tellable story? Um, <laughs> I'm going to take a second because yeah. that's like, <laughs> yeah, that's such a like, oh, what is the meaning of life? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, exactly. What makes a good you don't story? Know what it is. Jeez. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't say what makes a good story. I mean, like, um. What makes a story worth telling in the lens that you were trying to, you know what I mean, in that perspective? Sure. So (laughs) I think for a great big story story um, and what I used to tell my freelancers was that a great big story is A plus B plus C equals a great big story. And it's like it can't just be a person doing something equals a story. Right. It's got to be like a person doing something. And then that third element is like for some emotional reason or because it's going to change the world or because it's a passion and they're connected to it in some emotional way, Mm -hmm. um, will create a story. Mm So, you know, I'm I'm trying to think of like, I used to have pretty solid examples. I'd give freelancers like a a guy flying a plane isn't a story, Mm -hmm. but a guy flying a plane on the world's shortest 45 second plane trip that crosses between two little islands in Scotland. Now that's a story. He flies a plane for 45 seconds. You know, that's, that's interesting. That makes the guy flying a plane more exciting. Yeah. So that's sort of what we looked for in, in every great big story that we did was that, that third act, that surprise element, that, um, 
that thing that w- you weren't expecting. Yeah, that, that flow, that fun, that unusual thing that makes the sort of normalcy of the setting pop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I always noticed that, too, about those stories. I, I wanted to hear you articulate it, but that's kind of what I, I thought, too, is it's like, man, it's like, who knew people do this stuff? So, that, like, right, like, I, yeah. from, as for me, average Joe, like, watching it, you know, I'm like, I, I always had the sensation of, like, this is so f- interesting. Like, I can't believe this exists. That's kind of how I felt about a lot of it. Yeah. So when you start building up this catalog it's like so then you started pitching stories right yeah so i mean we were pitching stories from day one that was that was part of my job yeah so i think part of uh, actually almost most of my job to start with was pitching stories and then we do everything so we would like budget out the shoot we would book our shoot if it was in america we'd go out and film it ourselves Mm -hmm. if it was international we'd hire the freelance team uh, we'd bring back the footage, we'd do a radio edit, and then we had a really solid team of amazing editors who would then put in the B-roll, put in the sound, like mix the sound, do the coloring, and just take our like radio edit of here is this, here's the skeleton of the story, and then they turn it into a human, yeah. um, basically. <laughs> so wow. that, was, that was cool. They, yeah. were, they were really great to work with. So of, uh, of all the stories that you pitched and then the ones that went to pr- into mm-hmm. production, I... I I kind of know the answer to this question, but like, I mean, are there a few like highlights that like really were special to you that that you think even um, in the future people will look back on and be like, that was an interesting story worth telling. And, uh, you know, I was wondering if we could talk about those moments a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So from from a a consumer perspective, but also just like you making it and like flashing back to when you were in high school and it's like I'm (laughs) in this flow moment and I see um, I I feel like I'm doing something really worthwhile and I'm tapped in. Like I I was wondering if you could uh, Talk about those stories as it pertains to the ones that you've told over the past couple of years. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. So I think like the stories that are most meaningful to me and that I really enjoyed creating are not necessarily the stories that got the most views. No, I sure. mean, the story and just to be like completely transparent, the, the story that I did that got the most views is actually the number one video on the Great Big Story YouTube page. Wow. It has 33 million views. Oh my God. And it's called I Can't Taste Anything. And <laughs> it was like in year one of Great Big Story, I interviewed a guy, Adrian Wellick, who's in London. And he had lost his sense of taste. And I thought that was fascinating. So yeah. I interviewed him about losing his sense of taste. And then it was like, oh, I, now I have to put footage over this. Okay. Grabbed one of my colleagues into the studio and was just like, eat stuff on camera and I'll film it. I'll film you like eating things and we'll like add colors and textures. It'll look really cool. But it is essentially just a three minute video of this guy eating things. Yeah. And it has 33 million views. And I will never understand what <laughs> algorithm YouTube did to like serve that to people. Cause <laughs> that's a, it's a, it's a weird one, but it does pop though. I mean, I, I've pops. seen that one. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, I remember being like, I got to see that. I remember actually, as you were saying it, I remember being like, gotta see that one gotta know what happened because that just sounds like it's i think it's more just like that just sounds like it sucks for this guy when yeah like, oh, that sucks let's hear about this yeah you know? <laughs> um but that's that's an interesting uh, case i I can, was, I can appreciate yeah. that that's what 33 million people that's watched insane. a guy eat and can't taste it or like a handful of people have watched it a few million times <laughs> i i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah five people watched it millions and millions of times they just couldn't believe it uh but i mean i guess that just i uh, that's just kind of I think speaks more about who we are as consumers of stories than, yeah. than the storytellers themselves. And the platform. I think let's platform. be honest, it's yeah. YouTube. So right. YouTube, I love. I'm I'm a huge consumer of YouTube. I watch most of my my video on YouTube. But that you know, it is a mixed bag of what you get. And yeah. that, the <laughs> fact that that went viral basically was was wild. But um, yeah. the stories that I've done that I really care about or that meant something to me. 
uh, one of the earlier pieces I did, I filmed in a level three maximum security prison. Mm -hmm. Wow. And which was a pretty intense experience <laughs> for someone who's never stepped foot in a prison. Like I've never visited anyone in a prison. I've right. never... Which I understand is a very privileged thing to say, but I had never been. It was also one of those places that I was just like, I'm not going to look up this place until after I've been there. Like, I don't want to know anything going in. Yeah. Just wild why That's I didn't. But it was better in the long run um, <laughs> that I hadn't done Gosh, that. that sounds daunting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but why I, I wanted to do this story was it was about a chamber music group who are part of Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. And they go into prisons and do a music program with some of the prisoners there. And this was a music program where the inmates were learning violins and cellos and string instruments and were creating really beautiful music. And because both of my parents are musicians, the idea that music was being used as a tool for therapy and as a tool for expression in a prison system, mm. I just thought was incredible. And I really wanted to, to speak to both the musicians and to the inmates and hear what they had to say about its, its impact. Yeah. And it was at a really interesting time in my life personally. And I went with one of my colleagues who was also, we, we were both going through some breakups um, yeah. at the time. So it was already kind of like in a bit of a heavy, dark place. And then we went and did this really <laughs> heavy, like emotionally heavy story. Yeah. Um, but it really put into perspective life, yeah. seeing like, yeah. seeing just how music could have such an impact and how um, these inmates were using it to, try and send messages to people on the outside and, and trying to use music to heal from things that have happened to them in their past. Man. And so that was that was a really cool experience and it really, you know, threw me in the deep end of, of what I feel comfortable in and what situations I would not normally put myself in. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a really steep learning curve really quickly, but I, I was really happy with that story and the way it came out. I, I feel like we did justice to, to their stories. And you felt like that when you were in that environment with like maybe a little prep and maybe like a scary sort of place that you were able to thrive. Like, did you, did you pick? Did you walk out of that being like, I gotta, I gotta tap more into this? Because it sounds like you a little bit channeled whatever was going on in your own life and the dark place that you were in. Sometimes that makes for the best creative stuff, in my opinion. Yeah. And like, it seems like you brought some of that to the piece, mixed with the heaviness of what was going on there and the lightness of it that people were people that are going through this this really dark circumstances being a human being were able to uh, kind of rise above it by using a platform like something like like an expression like music which I think everybody universally understands no matter whether you're wh no matter what you've done in your life you've used music uh, either as an escape or as a mechanism to express yourself so did you see yeah. that as a framework for like oh I can do more of this I mm. think what it really did was it made me realize that I could very easily let go of my comfort zone to get the story that I cared about. Nice. And so that was what I learned from doing that because I really wanted to tap into this program and what it was doing and how it was helping mm -hmm. so much that like I got over the having to be searched every day as I walked into the prison and, and to be in an environment where I felt uncomfortable or a little like on edge. And honestly, after being there for a couple of hours I kind of just forgot where I was because I was way more engrossed in telling the story than I was about caring about my own yeah. <laughs> environment I think that's something that all the great big story producers did a really good job of like we put ourselves in a lot of situations that were wild to think about now I had friends who climbed um I'm gonna forget the name of it but this is this giant like rock face called like devil's something sounds like a giant rock face giant <laughs> rock face called devil's something yeah they 
physically never climbed a rock face before in their lives. They climbed that for eight and a half hours just to film a story. Like Man. that's like the, the comfort levels and the things that we were willing to let go of and just do in honor of making this three to five minute documentary was incredible. <laughs> and it's interesting because like when you talked about earlier about the, the great big four story be starting as, as a, as a, as a product in the beginning, like it was like, okay, this is like, is it news? It's CNN, but it's a different thing. And it's like, it really though, what you're describing to me, at least personally speaks to the heart of journalism. Yeah. Like it sounds like you became a journalist in that moment, like the letting go so that you could tell the story, you know? Yeah. And it's like, and they, Ultimately, uh, I mean, I'm just putting my own sort of perspective on it, but it sounds like you actually did do that in the end. Like, you told the story, but it was still journalistic. It still was the news in some way, you know? <laughs> yeah, just more like human interest yeah, but news. It was human. Less, it wasn't, yeah. yeah, it wasn't, you know, Less what like we know news as today. But, I mean, yeah. like, people always say, like, oh, there's no good news or, like, you know, and but, like, really, like, the good news is that this stuff is happening on the planet, you know, <laughs> and you're right. able to tell that story. Right, for sure. It is. It's 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 human news, you know. Might yeah. not be time pressured, but it's still important. So I, I always found the animal pieces kind of interesting and I saw you posted about uh one of them on Instagram, like the Tasmanian devil. Yeah. Which like I'd like to talk about that and other animal like in a in a lighter change of pace. Um so you went real head maybe it's not maybe it's not that different than the prison system. I don't know. <laughs> but like I do think it's interesting to like I've always been interested in producers and, and film people that are just like putting a camera on like you know, like you see this with like food people, like they're like I've seen it in your city, like people with like all these cameras taking a picture of like a tiramisu. You know what I mean? <laughs> Must not have been a really good tiramisu. <laughs> <laughs> not to say like it's like uh, like this this is like that, but it's like okay, here's my cat. She's sitting here, right? It's like with one leg up, by the way, just like yeah. And, and she actually she feels like she's posing as soon as I said that, yeah. which is kind of weird. But um, uh, I'm like here's my beautiful animal yeah, right here. Yeah, you look like, good, girl. How do you how do you um? Yeah. What are you trying to get out of uh, out of filming an animal? Like I can tell you what I think about it. You know what I mean? And because uh, I get with the Tasmanian devil, I think I get that. Like, people think of the Tasmanian devil as like blah, 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 the devil. You know, I, that's so you're showing like this is a real thing, and it doesn't yeah. really uh, it doesn't do that. It doesn't you know shop at Acme for TNT explosives. It, it, Surprisingly, but, <laughs> yeah, no. Is that what the takeaway was? But it's like, but what what are you trying to get? What, what's your approach when you're filming an animal? What story are you trying to tell about, about animals? Because you all did a, a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, we did for the first few years. Uh, we had a series called On the Brink, and the idea was to capture animals that were on the brink of extinction or were endangered or, you know, sort of not in a David Attenborough sense. Like we definitely weren't going out into the wild <laughs> yeah. and filming this these animals. penguin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, David Attenborough. <laughs> um, my hero. Yeah. Uh, all of our heroes. Uh, <laughs> love that man. Yeah. Love that man. He's, he's the voice inside of all of us that's like, recycle. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> it's in there. <laughs> Every time I look at a straw, I'm like, yeah. no, David Attenborough would <laughs> yeah. be so angry at me. We were trying to uh, capture these animals. So we would go to um, like sanctuaries or zoos or, or places where these animals were often in breeding programs or were trying to be preserved in some way. And a lot of people think thought I think from when you look at the videos it looks like we took the animal into a studio and we just we never did that never and yeah. there was so many rules and protocols and things we had to go through to even walk into the zoo with camera equipment right mm. so we would we have this seamless paper that we would film them on and we had to send that paper in advance so they could test it with the animal and make sure it wasn't toxic and uh -huh. and all that sort of stuff there was so many precautions especially at the ones that I filmed at Hillsville Sanctuary there's the the people there are just they, they couldn't love animals more they are so caring to to the animals they take care of yeah um but the aim with that story was i feel like 
for me, I only filmed Australian animals for the series. I love Australian native animals and they are so cool and they are so unusual. And I think a lot of people think of Australian animals as kangaroos, koalas. That's it. Yeah. Um, but there's so many more and they're so interesting. And so for me, it was like, I really want to put things like the Tasmanian devil and, and the Lord house stick insect and things like that on a platform and to document them visually as this is what they are and where they are and how they look right now. Yeah. Um, and this is why you need to not use straws and a little, <laughs> little David Attenborough-esque, like this yeah. is an animal that's endangered. Like take a look at it now because you might not get to look at it for very long. Sure. Um, that kind of approach, just making people aware that these animals were, were at risk. But the, the Tasmanian devil one was, was kind of scary. I actually wasn't <laughs> even allowed in the enclosure because they are mainly nocturnal but when they're not they can snap a human thigh bone in their jaws in just one bite so (laughs) i was actually way out of the enclosure with a very long lens um with some very awesome handlers who were putting vegemite on the seamless to encourage the tasmanian (laughs) devil yeah apparently he likes that just some vegemite (laughs) that they had on them or was it just like is there something about vegemite that this Uh, animal liked yeah (laughs) no every australian just has a jar of vegemite (laughs) on us ready to whip out somebody say vegemite yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 10 australians come Crawling out of the <laughs> do a really bad job of uh, representing my country, but that's funny to me. That's uh, that's cool. I mean, I I I, I, I always like the animal pieces, and like of course the Tasmanian. Like I think people don't realize that like there's so that how unusual Australian wildlife and stuff. Like there's there's yeah. so much stuff there that doesn't exist anywhere else. Like like there's like ex- extremely high percentage of all the uh, animals on the planet exist there. Yeah. And they're weird. Yeah. <laughs> they have, we have like a whole different ecosystem of like um, flora and fauna. So yeah. yeah it's, and then Australia is really protective about it. Like you can't, you can't bring any fresh fruit or anything into Australia <laughs> that could have like bugs or could have something that could harm our native wildlife. We're really, really strict on, on quarantine uh, of fruit and vegetables and stuff coming into Australia. So, yeah. you know, th- there is efforts there to, to make sure that the animals are around for many years to come. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, and that's a story worth telling. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So the, the last story I wanted to ask you about was, and what I actually just watched this morning, Candy Bomber, mm. 2016. Uh, I can tell yes. you what I, you can tell me what you think, like what I found interesting about that one. And I, again, I'm bringing this one up because I know that I know that you appreciated that on some deeper level. Mm-hmm. But um, what I appreciated about this one was actually the aesthetic of it, like the way it looked. Um, yeah, I thought it was pretty striking. I don't know, like the details of this guy, just the way it looked was like very like. I don't know, like uh, like you were like it's it's it, when it's like one of the um, videos you see where like I like had a sense of this person by the way that it was filmed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you kind of like when you said earlier about how like, you know, you, you make something, you know, A, B, C, something that C is that thing that pops. I felt like in this video, me personally, was that the C, the thing that popped was how the actual um, profile aesthetic setting popped this person. Right. right? Is that what you were going for? You yeah. know, am I making sense? Am I being no, like a you hippie? Are. Yeah. <laughs> you are making sense. I think some of that was premeditated and some of it was um, based on the environment. Yeah. So when we would set up an interview shot, we'd really try and think about where this shot was and did it tell the story of the person that you're interviewing in their surroundings. Like, you know, in fiction, you think of your mise-en-scene. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. think of your, like, there's always something in the frame that's telling you more about the subject 
than you're consciously aware of. And so even in documentary, even in real life interviews and things like that, you're always trying to think of, of the scene that you're filming in. Um, and for Gail, he was in a um, aged care home facility in Arizona. Uh, one of the coolest ones I've seen though. Like they had their own apartments and looked out onto this amazing golf course. Like it was, it was like very fancy. Yeah. Um, but I knew that we would be filming in a relatively small environment that there wouldn't be a lot there of his own identity, even though it was his home, it was still like part of this facility. So there's, you know, restrictions around what they can have in there and stuff. It's not like I was going to be able to take Gail, who was this pilot during the Berlin airlift and put him in front of an airplane. Mm -hmm. So what I thought going into it was I want, I don't want you to think you're in a nursing home or you're in an old aged care facility. I want you to think that you're somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so immediately I knew I needed to film on a seamless, which is what we call like a solid color background. Mm -hmm. Um, normally paper can be fabric. Um, but yeah, just a plain background. And then at the time I was really into the look of like out of focus lights. Yeah. Just thought that was so trendy. <laughs> um, and so I, I set up a few trial uh, efforts to see what I could make that look like. I used Christmas lights. I used a whole bunch of different lighting setups. And in the end it was actually getting cafe lights, which like those big round bulbs that you see at like all the hipster dining places yeah, in New York drop City. Yeah, the ceiling kind of. Yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of vibe. And I taped them um, to the background so that you couldn't see the wires. And when I had the right lens, um, which I can't remember what I use right now, but when I had the right lens and I could throw the background out of focus and then Gail was just really sharply in focus in the front of the frame, it almost looked like airplane lights, <laughs> which was what I was kind of trying to go for. Yeah. Uh, it looked like, like a plane landing at night. And because of that, I was able to get him as close to feeling like he was in an airplane environment uh, while not leaving his his little location in Arizona. Yeah, and I think that you really accomplished that. Um, is that the? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's what I felt that you know, and uh, and it was just kind of a moving piece in general, just like just like something about this old timey. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he was such a sweet guy too. He was just so nice and was so he put on his uniform for us. That was another thing we did to like make him feel like he was out of that environment. Um, to feel like he was in the environment where we were telling the story, which is like. 50 years prior in um in berlin yeah uh so he put on his uniform for us and then i think the thing that really brought it all together was the animations by sean luttrell i'm probably saying his last name wrong sean luttrell who i actually never directly met we spoke through email yeah <laughs> wow um but i had actually filmed and i i said this in my I, I did a little post about it on social media yeah. but i had said that i had filmed a whole different section of b-roll that was going to cover the story um, in between the interview, I'd filmed B-roll using human shadow puppets, basically. Wow. Uh, and thought that that was really cool and that was going to do it. And then when I put it with the story, it just, it didn't work. And my senior producer was like, this doesn't work. And wow. my supervising producer, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first time I was like, oh, okay, now I, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't I give up. Yeah. Um, but then I sort of started toying with the idea of animation and, and, decided a couple of images that I wanted to see in there based on photos that Gail had shown me. And then this animator, I, I showed him the photos and I put roughly where I wanted the animations to go and he just ran with it and that made it really, really cool. That's amazing that that can happen like that. Yeah. Like how you start out with like one kind of vision and then just through a series of trial and error, something else pops out. Yeah. You know, but, 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 but it was, for the was better. really great. Yeah. yeah. I, that's like what I like the most about the creative process, really. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't know, just like you, you have an idea, but you don't really know until you get into the flow, until you get into the presence and start doing it. And I don't know, that story was just, uh, from, as an American story, like it's just like something that I think is like not going to be remembered in that way. You know, like um, 
Like, I think we're probably going to lose, and I think it's important for us to remember our history. Uh, like, we're going to lose some of that in, like, textbooks and stuff like yeah. that. Like, you know, we have this opportunity now, like, with digital media and with film to kind of go back and try to capture the last of that in a way that we can relate to it through through a mechanism like storytelling. Um, so I just think that, that kind of brings up a, a different kind of empathy that people can have. Um, and it's just uh, to keep sight of where we're coming from. It's just uh, I just think that that kind of stuff is really important. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Oh, that's why I love documentary and I love telling other people's stories is you really are making a like record of something in a moment of time. Like mm-hmm. that that's who that person is right then, right there in that moment in time. It is like creating living, breathing history books in a weird kind of way. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think that the, you know, just another quick one of my thoughts is that like, I think that the, you, the, the, the mechanism of storytelling is the way in which we can relate to and empathize with, with the subject. You know, throughout my whole life, before I really realized how important storytelling was, I just kind of saw, you know, the subject for what it was. Or you read about something, and you can't connect, but it's really storytelling that does it. So that's why I find all your stories, your personal stories, very interesting and genuine and impressive. And um, I just think you're a fascinating person, and I, I uh, you know, I really appreciated this this conversation. Well, thanks, man. I think <laughs> you're fascinating, too. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> just because I have a cool cat doesn't mean I'm fascinating. <laughs> Um, She's but pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate it, Jules. And um, I won't take up too much more of your time. Uh, okay. I just want to thank you for coming on the Real People Podcast. You're the realest person. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I enjoy being an actual human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, good. Um, all right. And last question before you go. How do you feel about Vegemite? Just not a fan? Uh, no, I actually, I love Vegemite. Okay. Uh, just want to make guy. sure that yeah. all my, all my uh, assumptions and stereotypes were true. Thank you. You got to do it right, though. <laughs> How do you do it just right? Just don't like take a spoon of it. Like yeah. nobody eats Vegemite in a spoon. Yeah. You just you get a piece of toast, butter, uh-huh. tiny bit of Vegemite. Not a not a lot. Enough to like have a smattering, like just a just a slight a brown little, spread. It's just a little like <laughs> so gross. When you say yeah, it that like was that. a gross way to that say it. That was a gross way to say it. Sell it, but uh, yeah, <laughs> just like a little, <laughs> a little bit, slotch. a little brown. Spread of butter. If yeah. you make up a word after the word brown to yeah, describe the spreading, no. a little brown schlock. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah, you don't <laughs> want that. Um, Add cheese if you want it to be extra good. But no, I love Vegemite. Okay. I just yeah. wanted to know because I like it a lot too. Yeah, it's good. But some of my other Australian friends, they're like, ah, you know, like, like that's, it, I think, I don't know, maybe you just hate it because it's a stereotype, but uh, it is fucking yeah. good. So I'm glad we confirmed this. This yeah. is really all I wanted to talk about. So uh, we got to the meat of the important stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a Vegemite sandwich for lunch, hopefully. Excellent. I have some. I can bring you some next time. I figured you did. You mm-hmm. had some when, like all Australians do. Always, right, right, right now. Here it out. is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, Jules. Well, thank you very much. Thank I'll you see you next me. time. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. That was Jules. Thanks for tuning in to the Real People Podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Julian Wilkinson, for the amazing conversation. See you guys next week. Cheers. Stay healthy. <laughs> <laughs>